Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, welcome. Um, uh, here we are. We're exiled from our beautifully yes. appointed studio for this week's edition of our lovely podcast. And uh, I've been traveling. Yes. Well, uh, you've had you've been away. Where have you been? I have been to uh, the beautiful island of Madeira. Right. Um, and how was that? Bit. It was brilliant. The best bit, though, was sitting by the pool, watching stories go all around the world based on our last episode of our podcast. Yes. All about Diana. Feel we've made it. Yeah, exactly. So Amazing. Was, yeah. That was very exciting. Um, and we've fact, also had some feedback on the show, haven't we, and what people want to hear and some we, suggestions for future programmes. We are starting to have feedback. They say, I talk too much. So I'm going to communicate myself in a different medium. This is how I'm feeling. Aha. Uh-huh. That says it all, doesn't it? That's what we're going to be talking about today, as every week. Well, actually, I'm hoping you will do the bulk of the talking because this is um, here is another visual aid. We're going to be talking about Guy Burgess, The Cambridge Spies, and Andrew's brilliant book, um, in which he looks a bit like Guy Burgess. He does, doesn't it? Exactly. Same hair. (laughs) Same background, I reckon. Uh, Yes. Uh, Same clothes. So, So, yeah, we're going to be be joined shortly by a special guest on our little Zoom. But um, first of all, um, for people who don't know, because all of this happened a long time ago, who were the Cambridge Spies? Who was Guy Burgess? Why should we care? Well, the Cambridge Spies were a group of uh, Cambridge undergraduates recruited in the 1930s to spy for Russia. Uh, they all knew each other, which, of course, goes against tradecraft. Uh, um, they originally recruited by the first of the Cambridge Five, uh, Kim Philby, and he recruited David uh, Donald McLean and then Guy Burgess. And then Guy Burgess, in turn, recruited uh, Anthony Blunt uh, and John Kent Cross. 
But we talk about the Cambridge Five. I think we should more honestly talk about the Cambridge 50 because it was a much bigger group than we realised. Uh, and they uh, were probably the most effective uh, group aspiring in history. Uh, they all penetrated the Foreign Office, the Intelligence Services, Civil Service. Um, and when I wrote my book in, on Guy Burgess in 2015, it was the first proper biography of Burgess. He'd always been seen as a bit player. And I think mm. what I hope I showed was that he was a much more important, perhaps the most important figure. And I think we care about it, partly because of the intelligence that they betrayed to the Russians, of course, at a crucial time because of their high positions. But also this idea of these people who had pretty privileged lives. They came from public schools. They say they'd all been at Cambridge together, who um, then, uh, in a sense, had all the benefits of this sort of lifestyle and yet in a sense, sought to, to betray betray it. I mean, they were sort of running with the hares and the hounds. And I think that's what's always intrigued people. Plus the story uh, that there must be others. There was a, perhaps an Oxford ring. Uh, and also that uh, there were perhaps many more people in this ring. We've only had some of the papers released. Uh, and there's a lot more, I hope, still to come out. Our guest, Nigel West, may be able to shed some light on that. I mean, there have even been releases in the last few weeks relating to the story. So the story goes on. I think there are many more people to be revealed. And the attraction of someone like Guy Burgess is that he had this hinterland. He worked in the BBC. He wrote articles. He knew everyone from, um, I don't know, um, George Orwell to, to Noel Coward to... Uh, and he moved in pretty glittering circles. He was outrageous. Uh, he hid in open view his homosexuality and his his communism. Uh, and so he is a very sort of rich subject for a biography. Uh, and one of the fortunate things I had when I started researching this in 1984 was that many of the people who uh, knew him were still alive. I was able to interview, for example, his former lovers, um, uh, and and also by the time the book came out, some files were being released. So I had the benefit of looking at the files, uh, okay. including some 300 files that were released uh, as the book came out uh, uh, re relating to the security investigations into his disappearance in 1951. OK, well, wow, that's a very amazing introduction to, to Burgess and the, the Cambridge Spiring. I mean, just going back a little bit, I think a lot of our viewers, listeners won't quite understand just how big a scandal this was, and how long it lasted. I mean, really, from the 50s to the late 70s, there was almost monthly speculation. Who was the second man? Who was the third man? Was there a fourth man, a fifth man? Was there a woman? Uh, and I remember at the beginning of my career in television, interviewing, um, was it Andrew Boyle? Who wrote yes. Climate of Treason um, in 79, I think. Yeah, and that was the book that really exposed um, um, Blunt. As you say, there was a sort of it, it was almost a huge paralyzed story, and it went on for absolutely ages. It, made it, it still goes on. Still really? goes on. I mean, the the new releases have suggested that the sixth man was in fact a woman called Flora Sol Solomon. But uh, as you say, it paralyzed the intelligence services. I mean, there were all these witch hunts going on in this wilderness of mirrors. Who could you trust? Who could you believe? And literally, as you say, every Sunday, the Sunday Times or someone would have a story uh, relating to the Cambridge spy ring. I mean, Chapman Pincher produced a book almost every year on the subject based on leaks from people like Peter Wright. So it was exciting. And I mean, we were both uh, at Cambridge about the same time as these stories were really running with the exposure of Blunt. It was sort of cowboys and Indians, and we were still living in the Cold War. These things sort of mattered. Wow. 
I mean, the scene is historical now, but at the time they 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 felt very very real. It's uh, it's an interesting kind of insight into the uh, intellectual atmosphere of the 1930s, isn't it? Um, that these men, um, and they were mostly men, from the pinnacle of the establishment, the best schools, the best universities, came to despise their own country, its role in the world, its place in the world. Of course, we're living through the Depression. There's massive unemployment. There's hunger marches. Um, there's the British Empire. There are massacres in India. Um, and now there's this new model in Moscow and the state, which, of course, had its own problems, which they mostly ignored but was seen almost like a, a quasi-religious cause that you could join like a priesthood to serve this new vision of humanity and move on from this kind of dead old world of Britain and, and, and all the dying. I think that's heart. right. I think there was a political revolt with all of them, but there was also a personal revolt. There was often another reason. I mean, the Russian intelligence services took on the role of absent fathers. Many of them had lost their fathers either through separation or, or, or death. Uh, and someone like Guy Burgess, I think, wanted to épater le bourgeoisie. He, 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 <laughs> he resented. He hadn't, in a sense, been the success that he hoped. And this was a way of making himself a bigger person. I think some, like Philby, were were natural deceivers, and others, like Blunt, were brought in because they're, they're, they they believed in the Marxist interpretation of art, uh, and was brought in by Burgess. So they all had their slightly different reasons to get involved. But you're absolutely right. We, they talk about this pistol shot in the dark, this one moment in the 30s, and it was really the early 30s that persuaded these this generation to feel that the only future lay in supporting the the Popular Front and and, and and, and that they could be part of creating a new world and sweeping away an old world that they didn't like. Um, there's an amazing picture here from your own book. I don't know if anybody can make any sense of this picture. <laughs> that sums on, it up, doesn't it? For those on Spotify, um, it's a picture of a rather loose-looking Burgess, sort of half asleep and smirking at the camera in front of a very posh kind of country house with a butler straight out of Downton Abbey walking by with cups of tea. And you just sort of think, I'm going to bring all of you bastards down. Is what he well, I think the irony is there was there were sort of hypocrites. He'd just gone out um, in support of the waiters at Trinity College, Cambridge, where he was, that they should have better terms. And yet when I talked to his brother about how he behaved towards the staff, because he came from this very privileged background where they had staff, he, no one, he said, was ruder to, to, to the servants than Guy. Really? So that this is, again, it's this, this mixture of this very complicated psychological background to the story, which... I do, uh, I I do love this people. aspect. I love this aspect of your book, actually. I really should say, <laughs> Christmas is coming. This is a great gift for anybody. Uh, Andrew really does intertwine the political and social story um, of Britain and, and the world at that time with a wonderfully precise analysis of Burgess's own kind of unique psychology and his kind of strangely kind of dangerous libertine lifestyle and, and it's, the establishment, it's, it seems so forgiving. The more outrageous he is, the more he behaves like no spy could possibly behave, the more he's trusted, he's ushered into yet another sanctum of the establishment, the Foreign Office, the BBC, the British Embassy in Washington, the Secret Service itself. And yet he's living absolutely on the edge in, in, in kind of any way you can imagine it. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the points they said was indiscretion is not normally the characteristic of a spy. And so, exactly, it was a very, very clever disguise. And he would often confess to being a spy, and people would say that's just being guy, being outrageous. Wow. But actually, in his cups, he was telling them the truth. 
And so the guy, there was a Russian agent, wasn't there? Or maybe he was a British, or was he Welsh? I can't remember. Um, in Cambridge. And the Russians, the Soviets were very clever. This is quite early in the story of the Soviet Union. But they must have sensed that there were people in the establishment of Britain, maybe other places too, who could be kind of recruited while they were young, who were destined for great things and could perhaps help the Soviet Union for the rest of their lives. And they were called sleepers, weren't they? Or moles, exactly. And it was very clever. You know, of course, Lacari writes about this a lot. But by taking this very long-term view, by penetrating the establishment, I think they recognised how uh, influential these these a very narrow group of people were likely to be. They, it was easy to spot them. They were going to go on to great things, whatever happened. Uh, and by just ensuring that they ended up in the right spot, uh, they were able to wreak enormous damage. And of course, they were all jolly good chaps, so no one bothered vetting them. Uh, and they were able to, to operate in, with impunity, really. Uh, and it was only the flight in 1951, because of some code breaking, that the, 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 the network began to unravel. And even now, as I say, we don't know the full extent of the network. Well, before, we're going to invite Nigel to join us in about three minutes. But what happened in 51? Why was that such an extraordinary story? Um, what are the well, 51 is in a sense when, when the balloon went up. Um, what happened is American codebreakers were beginning to break Russian codes. They identified Donald McLean as uh, a spy. Uh, Burgess was, was basically tasked to escort him out of Britain. I think the feeling was that Burgess was a burnt out case and that, he, that it was a convenient device to get him out as well. Though there's some debate about whether he was tricked or he knew he was going. Uh, and they disappeared. There was a big cover up. We can talk a bit about that later on by the establishment. Uh, they didn't come clean about it. Uh, they pretended it was just a drunken homosexual es- escapade. But um, the story was leaked by the French police. Uh, and uh, really, from 1951, it has been a huge cause celeb. Um, uh, it affected relations with the Americans because they felt that we hadn't been entirely honest with them. Uh, it led to uh, reduced cooperation on things like um, nuclear secrets. So it had a big impact. And I think it also was the beginning of the challenge uh, or, or, or a feeling that, that the establishment were, were, were perhaps not always operating in a very ethical way. Uh, and, you know, we now have much more distrust of the establishment. And I think it really began uh, from this point in 1951. Fascinating. All right. Well, I'm now going to try for the first time to introduce a live guest, a little podcast. So let's see if this works. Standing by. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much, Nigel, for, for joining us. I was just about to say we're very fortunate to have you because you probably, and you can't say this, but I can, are the most distinguished writer on intelligence at the moment, an extraordinary range of books that you've talked about going back over 40 years. Uh, and you know well, an awful lot about the game. Sorry? I'm not here to be insulted. <laughs> but you've, 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 Worked you know, on this on this story now for a long time. I mean, going right back, I think to the nineteen seventies, uh, and continue, I think, to show an interest. And uh, I was just saying to Phil, new material uh, has even just been released into the archives recently, which adds a little bit to the story. Yes, can you the, sort of comment the, on that? The, the, the exciting aspect to the study of intelligence is that you never get the whole story. And that thanks to the treasure trove at Kew, the National Archives, 
where there are what six and a half thousand MI5 personnel files, personal files declassified. This is just uh, a, a wonderful golden era for looking at the world of espionage in a way that has never been possible before. And, and I think that there is one other thing to say about this, that hitherto, people who relied on interviews and even documents uh, gleaned from various different sources could never be entirely certain of the accuracy of the material that they were looking at. Whereas now, looking at MI5's contemporaneous material from the date of its inception, this material was constructed, written, prepared, uh, reported on by people who had no expectation that anybody other than a more senior officer would read their material. And that's very important to bear in mind that's so, no, Nigel, Nigel, can I just ask you a question? Are you determined to be a man of mystery today, or would you like to turn your camera on? Um, I, I thought my camera was on, but apparently it's not. No, it's not, but we thought maybe you just wanted to live in the shadows. Um, but it's up to you. No, no, no. Uh, I will see if I can get it on. Uh, That's usually start, a video. video. Yes, that would be it. Now, oh, there right. we, we, have, we have you. We have... We have but in some ways, we need a bit of caution here because these are investigatory files and they only reflect what people are telling the investigators. It's not necessarily the truth, is it? It's 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 building the mosaic. And, and but, that is particularly true of, of the FBI files, where certainly in MI5 documents, there is a tendency to say we can dismiss this or this is contradicted by some other item. And they're quite scrupulous in in that objectivity of the kind that you would expect from the barristers and solicitors who who were um, in those jobs before they were recruited into MI5. On the other hand, the FBI, I think, can be criticised for just taking everything without comment and putting it in their files, leaving historians 50 years later to make terrible mistakes and to claim, for instance, that uh, the FBI thought that John Lennon was a terrorist. Uh, this kind of thing um, appears all the time in American material because the, American, the FBI in particular did not discriminate. They took all the information without commenting on its authenticity at the time. Do you think one of the problems is that there's this drip feed of material? I mean, we've got the 6,000 files, but they're not really pushed out in, in chronological order. So we get a little bit here, a little bit there. And Andrew, don't complain, otherwise they'll, they'll close off. The <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? In some ways, the most secret organisation is the most open in terms of, of, look, of producing files. And it's created this bonanza, really, of intelligence writing. Has it never occurred to you that if of all the departments in Whitehall, the arguably the most secret department, namely the Secret Intelligence Service or MI5, are probably the, the departments that have had more books written about them than, than any other? <laughs> right. Well, that's yes. Well, maybe they should just be more secretive like the Cabinet Office and that would shut things down <laughs> on things. Can I, speaking as the non-expert of this group in this field, I would love to hear you, the two of you talking, me and 
other lay people who may be listening, just through the basic architecture of how the various men emerged over the years. Because this was something that took 20, 25 years. Maybe it's not even over yet. And it's such an amazing tale. So how did it start and how did it progress? Well, leave it to Nigel. I mean, does it really begin in 1951? Um, you're talking about the Cambridge Five? In, yes. In particular? Well, um, the Cambridge 50, I call them. <laughs> you're probably right. Um, I, I think it goes back to 1934. I, I think it goes back to Kim Philby. Uh, none of this would have happened uh, without Kim Philby falling head over heels in love with um, an Austrian Jewish lady, um, Lizzie who he, Friedman, who he subsequently married. Um, and I think that it all centers around uh, Kim Philby because he then, on the direction of his Soviet contact, uh, went to Guy Burgess and recruited Guy Burgess and uh, recruited uh, uh, Donald McLean. And that, that, I think, was the origins. I think that you, you have to look at uh, Kim Philby, who had no expectation of ever getting a decent job because Professor Robertson at Cambridge had, had written a very, dis a very uh, disagreeable reference for Philby in an attempt to make sure he never got a job in the civil service. So Philby had no expectation of ever reaching classified information. It was his contacts, people like Burgess and McLean uh, and Blunt, uh, who would turn out to be so significant and important. And they're and all still at college at this point. They're all still basically students or no, graduates. No. Uh, well, uh, Philby had graduated and he only went back to Cambridge after his recruitment uh, in order to fulfil the mission that had been given by Arnold Deutsch, who was the illegal resident in London. Deutsch guided Philby and uh, told him to go back to Cambridge in order to recruit, uh, to, recommend, to recommend, to in effect talent spot some of his pals, and that's precisely what he did. But, he, but it's a mistake to think that they were all at Cambridge at the, at the same time. Some of them scarcely knew each other. And uh, certainly John Cancross thoroughly disliked Anthony Blunt. But they were the same colleges within the same period of five or six years. Yes, indeed. But I think that the extraordinary thing, which I think Phil was hinting at, is that the story didn't really break in terms of people knowing about the treachery until much later. And there are in some ways two parallel chronologies. One is when the intelligence services had their suspicions or there were confessions, and actually when it all became public. Uh, and Phil and I were talking before you came on how even, for example, Anthony Blunt, no one knew about until 1979, even though the intelligence services had got a confession from him some 25 years earlier. That's right. I mean, you could, well, you could say that the, the whole story started with the MI5 investigation that was initiated as a consequence of the Venona decrypts. And the only person to be prosecuted as a consequence of the decryption of the Venona traffic uh, is Donald. Uh, 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 the only person to be prosecuted sorry, was um, Klaus Fuchs. N nobody else was ever prosecuted. But you could say that that was the beginning 
of MI5's interest, the, the certainty that there had been a spy in Washington in 1943 and 1944. And then, but it took a long time for the story to become public. I mean, this, this, the idea was that this should be buried and, and, and kept away from our allies and kept away from the public, really, wasn't it? Yes. My, my MI5 mentor was Arthur Martin, and he used to joke that the reason why he went to brief Hoover in 1951 after the defections of Burgess and McLean was that he was considered to be the best liar in the security service. Uh, (laughs) And he he went and told a pack of lies uh, to uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, And J. Edgar Hoover uh, had taken a pretty dim view of uh, MI5's counter-espionage abilities, really dating back to the the prosecution of Klaus Fuchs. Um, And... um, the prosecution of uh, uh, Alan Nunn-May. And do you think there's a sense that, you know, Klaus Fuchs didn't go to the right school, so he was prosecuted, and the others were allowed to escape or were given some form of immunity, that that no one wanted the story to, to, to come public? I know that that's a comforting thought to the people who are anti-establishment, but the truth is that Fuchs was stupid enough and arrogant enough to confess what he did. As Kim Philby did eventually disclose in a lecture to the to the KGB on, on only the second occasion that he ever addressed the KGB, um, he said they haven't they haven't got a chance of getting a conviction unless you're stupid enough to make a confession. And uh, that went for George Blake and that went for uh, Klaus Fuchs and it went for Alan Nunn May. The only reason why Alan Nunn May confessed was that he was absolutely terrified that he was going to be extradited to the United States because he had engaged in espionage in the United States and would face a death penalty. And it was his, the agreement was that he would be prosecuted in England. If he pleaded guilty, he would not be extradited to the United States. And that's exactly what happened. But there's a big debate. I mean, Philby also confessed in Beirut in 1963, even though he'd been under suspicion since 51. And there's some suggestion that he was allowed to escape or, or there was an incompetence because he wasn't under proper surveillance and he was able to just jump on a freighter and, and go to Russia. Yes, I think for some people, uh, some people have promoted the idea that he was allowed to to wander off into the sunset. <clears throat> but, but the reality is that he was uh, offered an immunity from prosecution. Uh, this was the instrument that subsequently was used with great effect in April 1964 against Anthony Blunt. And from a, a counterintelligence perspective, you're not really very interested in getting uh, imprisonments, prosecutions, convictions. But that's a job for law enforcement. From a counterintelligence perspective, you want to know what damage has been done and who the current spies are. And who, and if they can lead you to other spies, yes. And when you look at the um, the Philby confession, which is very interesting and misfiled, which is why it's been buried for all these years, uh, that is to be found in the Arnold Deutsch uh, personnel personal file uh, in the MI5 collection. And what's fascinating about it is that it's on different sheets of paper. It's typed up but it's just simply referred to as a memorandum. 
uh, with the date in January 1963. It's only when you realize what it is that you can see that this is the confession where he starts off by being disingenuous, saying, I'm trying to be as accurate as I can, but with the passage of time, it's been quite difficult. And he goes on to name people uh, who were communists with him at Cambridge. I mean, it's a truly astonishing document. And it's amazing that uh, it's never been disclosed before. You mentioned... Uh, do you hear it for the first time on The Scandalmongers? <laughs> you do Very indeed. good to know. You mentioned that they were trying to assess, the main priority is to assess the damage and find any continuing espionage and any still active spies. Has there ever been a real audit of what the damage that was done by these men? Um, is, is it possible to sum it up uh, in a few paragraphs? Because certainly Alan Bennett, when he wrote his play, was a bit dismissive, certainly of Burgess, sort of seemed to think, well, he was a silly man um, who broke the rules, but he didn't do any real damage. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you would well, agree with there, that. There is, there is a way of, of looking at this, uh, which, which says Kim Philby didn't do a great deal of damage to British interests because the kind of information that he was passing to the Soviets during the war was uh, order of battle material uh, for the secret intelligence service. So who who fills what jobs, personality profiles. This is all information that, that the Soviets could have got possibly from other sources uh, at various different times. And that in strategic terms, uh, he did very little damage beyond persuading the Soviets that there was no chance of a, a separate peace at least being negotiated in Spain with the Allies. So to, to that extent, you, you, it has been argued uh, that he didn't do a great deal of damage. And we certainly know that there has been a huge amount of exaggeration about saying that he had blood on his hands in relation to Albania. He told the Soviets that the Allies uh, were promoting insurrection in Albania and were training agents. But that wasn't a big surprise to the Soviets because the Albanian agents that had been recruited were all thoroughly penetrated by the Albanian authorities. And so I've always been very sceptical in terms of the blood on their hands, the damage that they did. Well, I think one of the ironies is, and I mean, you've edited books from Russian archives. It was a period during Glasnost when there was some collaboration. Uh, and we know how many documents were, were, were sent to Russia, but the problem was we don't know what was done with them and whether the people were actually believed. So we have this irony that the more successful they were, the less trusted they were. Yes. Uh, not only do I agree with that, but I was hugely entertained when I was in the KGB archives. Um, there was such a shortage of paper during the Second World War that it was often worthwhile turning the, the sheet over of a, a particular document to see what had been typed on the back because they they were recycling at a very early stage. And there was a huge amount of material, more than anybody could possibly have processed and analysed, that came from uh, all of these characters all the way through the, the Second World War. I think that the Soviets, as you rightly say, um, at, at least one time became suspicious of them because this windfall was too good to be true. 
And I mean, one of the sort of themes of the scandalmongers is the sense that um, uh, the establishment haven't always, in a sense, been as open as they could be. Uh, and I may be more anti-establishment than you. But I mean, do you think there's an element of that? I mean, you talk about the white paper after Burgess and McLean escaped in 51, and that really didn't tell the public the truth about what was happening. No, the, the white paper was an absolutely shocking um really disgraceful uh, performance. Um, but it, 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 again, it's worth remembering that although it was written by Graham Mitchell, the, the DG who signed off on it was Dick White. So they, it wasn't just Graham Mitchell that was culpable making, making full, completely false statements, uh, several of them, um, and actually completely misleading the public in that white paper. It was Dick White, who also knew the truth, who signed off on it. Who was, think, what, sorry, who was all, White all, at all the time? Dick, Dick White, White was the was Director the General of the but do you think one of the ironies is that in some ways you're saying that, you know, they didn't do that as much damage as people think, but it did paralyze the intelligence services of both America and Britain as everyone went on this witch hunt to find out who else was in, before they had to clean out the stables. And in some ways, I, I, I again, ironically, that was the, the, the real damage. Well, I, I was very shocked a few years ago when I was looking in the archives and came across some documents uh, that had not been digitalized. And they were the monthly reports that had been written by MI5 for the Prime Minister. And these documents, of which there were no copies made for the Cabinet Office, these documents were carried on a monthly basis by Sir David Petrie to the Prime Minister, who could read them. Uh, and he then took them away. Uh, because no copies, could, they were too secret to be left with the Prime Minister. What were these secret documents? They were monthly reports written by uh, Guy Liddell, um, which is, uh, summarised all the work during the previous 28 days of what had been going on in the security service. So the ag names of agents, operations being conducted, interrogations, being contemplated, investigations, and so on. All of this was delegated by Guy Little to Anthony Blunt. Ah. So, um, and furthermore, Anthony Blunt was able to go into every single branch and section and subsection of MI5 and say, what are you doing? I'm here on the authority of the Prime Minister. And just to give you a, an idea of the scale of his knowledge, which far surpassed anybody else in the entire intelligence community in relation to MI5, is that um, I actually found in the KGB archives a memorandum from uh, a secret organization within MI5 that was responsible for the management of agents inside neutral embassies based in London. So the officer in charge wrote to Blunt and said, you know, we've never been asked to put all the names of all these agents together on one sheet of paper. And of course, this is immensely damaging. Please may I have your undertaking that as soon as it's 
as you've read it, you will destroy this document. That is the document that I found in Moscow. That's amazing. Now, that does show the depth of penetration of these men. That's incredible. And do you think that in some ways this big argument of who is most effective and important of the Cambridge spies, does that make the case for Blunt? It, It makes a very good case for Blunt because Blunt had this breadth of knowledge um, and, and what is even more extraordinary is that the, the, these monthly reports started in 1942, and they started as a consequence of uh, the Director General, uh, Sir David Petrie, um, having a conversation with Duff um, Cooper, who was the minister responsible for MI5. Duff Cooper had just had a long, jolly lunch with the Prime Minister, who had said, this is more or less the the correct dialogue. Uh, Duff, what are you doing these days? And Duff Cooper said, Prime Minister, I'm your Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. There was a long silence. And the Prime Minister said, yes, but but what do you actually do? (laughs) And he said, well, Prime Minister, I'm in charge of MI5. I have responsibility for the security of the nation. And there was another long silence. And the Prime Minister said, what's MI5? And what do they do? <laughs> That's a bit worrying. <laughs> so it, who would you, I mean... It, it beggars belief, but, but as a consequence of that, um, Duff Cooper called in uh, David Petrie and said, we really must start briefing the Prime Minister. Desmond Morton is in and out of uh, Number 10 all the time. He has the ear of the Prime Minister. We've got to keep up our end up. We've got to show what we're doing. And that led to Blunt being authorised to go to every single section within MI5 and uh, demand to know the effectiveness of their operations, what they were planning, the the true names of their agents. I mean, it's it's scarcely credible. That is amazing. Or had their different strengths? I mean, I argue that Burgess, for example, was an agent of influence. You could argue Philby had the most senior jobs within intelligence. Do they all have different strengths? Or do you think you can actually say this was the most important? You know, McLean with nuclear secrets or whatever. Oh, and can you answer in two minutes? Because we're running out of time. I'm sorry. I I think you're right by referring to McLean's influence, because during the um, Korean War, obviously he had... Uh, as head of the American Department of the Foreign Office, considerable influence. But I'm I'm more interested in a counterintelligence perspective, and for me, that's Philby uh, and Blunt. Uh, but of course, Burgess was the thread keeping them all together. Well, that sounds like a good point to to end. Thank you so much for joining us, Nigel. I mean, and your insights. And it's worth it for the Churchill story alone. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, Phil, that was amazing. Uh, I think we're very lucky to have him. And he raised all sorts of interesting questions. Um, uh, I still champion Guy Burgess as the most important. But um, I wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, but it looks like you've adopted Nigel's mysterious approach to Zoom. So I can't see you at the moment. You turned your camera off. Oh, here we are. Sorry Ah, about that. That's all right. Uh, All the people who are listening on Spotify will wonder what on earth I'm talking about. But then again, they probably do anyway. Here I am in my in my tank top. So uh, that was probably why I didn't want to be seen. It's fine. You look great. It's it's funny. The background tells us all we need to know, really, about our respective commitment to our jobs 
you're in a library surrounded by books. I'm in front of a bar with a picture of Australia. <laughs> that sums us up, doesn't it? <laughs> Perhaps it does. But no, it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're not, you know, I mean, you've done a bit on intelligence, but it's a slightly sort of different world to you. Were, were there things that struck you in, in what he was saying? Well, I'm less interested in the sort of technical side, I guess, of who betrayed who and which documents were leaked and when. I guess I'm really interested in the, the psychology of the period. Yep. You know, it was such an amazing thing to betray your country like that. So, and and over, for, over such a long time, and even through the war, whereas if you grew up in the 30s disliking Britain, you can kind of understand there are reasons for that. Some bad things were happening in the world, and Russia looked like a beautiful, wonderful new way of doing things. Um, and yet, to, to live through this, Britain's finest hour, and I think it probably still is, and still remain loyal to Stalin, and then to see all of the terrible things that he did during and immediately after the war and still remain loyal. Well, it's one of the big questions that we all address, and I have several chapters in the book. Why why do they do it? And I think it's you pick your football team and you stick it with it, uh, and you have to have these intellectual somersaults to justify your position, particularly with, during the Nazi-Soviet pact. But you kind of leave history to judge, and history might take 200 years. I think the fascinating thing with Burgess is he never recanted. He had a terrible life in, in Moscow, which is captured, as you say, in, Anthony, in, in, in the Ellen Bennett play, uh, An Englishman Abroad. And actually, Philby, too. I mean, he tried to commit suicide. They both drank very heavily. Um, in some ways, they must have been very disillusioned. They, they devoted their lives to this cause and found that they were just treated like just normal agents. They weren't totally trusted by the Russians. They had a pretty, if you can imagine what Moscow must have been like in the 19, early 60s, it must have been pretty grim. grim. Pretty grim. Well, I was reminded, and I'm sure this is not an accident, of the character Bill Hayden in Tinker Taylor, who one wonders is perhaps slightly modelled on some of these guys. I oh, think, absolutely modelled on Philby, absolutely. And, and when he's confronted, he says, I had to make a choice and I wanted to make a mark on history. I think they saw themselves as grand historical characters, not just more cogs in the wheel of the British establishment, but something much grander and more exciting. More well, as I said, with Burgess, you know, he hadn't made much impact in, in terms of his life in Britain, and he thought this would be his his place in history. And it has. If he hadn't been a spy, we would never have, have heard of him probably. Uh, and I think the thing that came across with Nigel is it, it was sort of good luck for the Russians that Philby, you know, fell in love with this agent who recruited him. He came back and recruited others. And, and, and then they had these sort of jobs. I mean, they maneuvered themselves into some of these positions. But, you know, it's pretty lucky that Blunt had that job an MI5. Well, actually, I didn't um, want to. I didn't want to contradict Nigel, but he did say um, he thought um, perhaps Blunt, Philby were the more important. But he, in your book, you actually quote Nigel himself, and he says that when he met with Blunt, uh, Blunt told him that the genius person that held it all together, the key man, was Burgess. Well, and he does say that at the end of, of 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 our conversation. I mean, that the man who united them and push, kept pushing the thing was the sort of team leader. I suppose it's again how you measure it. And you talked about the audit, but it's very difficult to do an audit of treachery because mm -hmm. you don't know who saw what and when and how they responded to it. Uh, you know, there were so many factors, as he says, in, in 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 the betrayal of the Albanians that to pinpoint it on one particular person would be would be quite tricky. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are saying what Albanians I mean you're such an expert so is Nigel 
I think I know. I think I know what you're talking about, but maybe you, you could explain. What I should meant. exactly. I think there's a real danger that we, the, the intelligence people, have a sort of shorthand. But there was an attempt um, to infiltrate Albania with uh, ref, with exiles to to try and. Uh, basically take over the government there. This, you know, they're clearly close to the Soviet Union. It was an attempt to, to build a sort of, uh, a bridgehead for, for the West, uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and they thought that Hoxha would, 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 would that we could, you know, was the way to go. Um, but, you know, they were heavily penetrated already, these Albanian exiles. And I think they betrayed themselves as much as, as Philby. But I mean, the story is full of drama, and you can see how Philby picked up on it. I mean, I, I think the thing I find always rather chilling is the, um, the 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 Russian official who wants to defect at the end of the war and says that he has the name of the head of British counterintelligence that he's going to pass across, and Philby realizes this is him, and he actually maneuvers to go and interview him, but he delays his trip sufficiently for the man to be picked up and executed. Wow. Uh, so, um, but that must have been, you know, a very worrying moment because these defectors are popping up and they must have wondered how soon we're going to be rumbled. Uh, um, so they were living on their wits, wits end. Um, I mean, what Nigel didn't talk about was the fact that when Burgess uh, and McLean es- escaped in 1951, their escape was reported on the Friday night at the end of May to MI5. And an attempt was made to, to to chase them, but unfortunately, Dick White, who was mentioned, the head of the Secret Service, ha- wanted to do it himself, and his his passport was out of date. So there are all these sort of almost ealing comedy elements to it. But they, you know, they they kept the whole story quiet, and maybe on a counter uh, intelligence uh, basis, you know, you don't want to reveal your hand to the enemy. You want to to be able to follow uh, investigations, but. You know, I think it did create a lot of resentment, the fact that we weren't coming clean about the, the degree of penetration uh, in this country. And, of course, the Americans were also penetrated. It, it, it then emerged. And they'd had the same sort of policy of penetrating Ivy League universities quite successfully. So this this was a very, very effective system that the Russians had. I mean, you spent a, when you write a book about somebody, <clears throat> you spend an awful lot of time in their company and in the company of people that knew them. Um, is there anything about Burgess you found admirable? Well, you're a bit of a rebel yourself, let's be honest. Yeah, well, I felt very sorry for him. I had to, the, the research spanned 30 years, and so uh, I went through a whole series of reactions to him, you know, uh, really ended up with sympathy. But at one point I said to my wife, shall we call our second child Guy? Uh, <laughs> and she said, well, for the several reasons why we can't do that, not least that it's a girl. Um <laughs> So I, 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 you do get almost the Stockholm syndrome where you get drawn to people and identify with them. But yes, there probably is an element there, and it's the beginning of, in a sense, the themes of my books, which are about establishment cover cover ups. Because this white paper he talked about was was nicknamed the whitewash paper. It was full of lies, uh, and um, there were lies not just to the public, but but also to to fellow intelligence um, uh, um, officers and um, politicians. Uh, And, you know, nothing was made. It was only because the French leaked the story a week after they went. And then we went through the farce of looking for them when they were already in Russia. So there is a sort of parallel narrative there of what was really happening in reality and what actually, in a sense, the motions that people went through that they felt they needed to. 
I mean, you've also written a lot um, about um, Traitor King, um, another of Andrew's books um, about um, Edward VIII and his connections to, to to Germany and to the Nazis. And you know, if you're looking at it, if your pr- primary motivation is to be an anti-fascist at that time in the thirties, and you look around the establishment of Britain and perhaps of France too, and you see there's a, a worrying amount of sympathy for what's happening in Germany. That's one justification, I suppose, for throwing in your lot with Stalin and co. Oh, but, but of course, he then signs a pact with Hitler. But I suppose they, they by then they were so fully in, psychologically, they couldn't break away and they rationalised it as a tactical manoeuvre. Is, is that roughly what happened, do you think? Yes, well, I mean, you know, the the, the, the socialist society, which were the communists in Cambridge, was the largest uh, student society in the 1930s. And, and many of those people were very overt about their, their, their support. I mean, they did feel that, you know, they'd been let down by, you know, uh, the older generation, by the only hope lay, as I say, with the communists who were standing up, of course, the fascists in, in Spain. Um, but very few of them went underground like this and basically covered up their tracks. I mean, both Philby and Burgess pretended to be fascists in, in the 1930s. So they disguised their their true feelings. And then, of course, you say many people, there's a, a, a close um, uh, colleague of Burgess called Gromwe Reese, who we think was also recruited, he uh, dropped out the Nazi-Soviet pact in 1939. Um, and of course, all the way down the line, there were people, whether it was Czechoslovakia or Budapest, or, you know, various things really became uh, moments when they just had enough. Uh, and others, you know, Eric Hobsbawm and others remained communists to the end of their lives, but did it in a very open way. I think what's intriguing is these double lives that they led, ostensibly these very respectable establishment figures who were actually trying to subvert it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it's made me all the more enthusiastic for whatever we do, our podcast on your Trader King book, because uh, it's such a fascinating time. Um, and it never stops. It never stops throwing up new insights. Um, well, we've both written about the summer of 1940, and I've been told yes. that's the most, in a sense, the least well-known period of the Second World War. There's the most hidden about what happened in the summer of 1940. So that will be a good subject for us because we both come to it from slightly different perspectives. Well, that's right. And in fact, I, I, I think we probably have to still negotiate this between ourselves. But our next podcast might indeed be set in the summer of 1940. But until then... Thank you. What a fascinating conversation. And thanks for inviting Nigel. Yes, it was great. I think it works well with three. We'll do it again. It'd be interesting to know what other people feel, whether they like us having guests or they just really want to hear us. Well, um, yes, indeed. And and how I've managed or not to make the Zooms work. (laughs) Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.